This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the manly Warthog Man Cave in the piney woods of North Central Florida in the Melon Law Studio. Melon Law is the only official partner of, guess who, the Florida Gators. And uh, we're going to be joined in a moment by Mr. Phil Kirpin, who's be uh, joining us to discuss many important issues to our lives in a second. We are also, of course, protected by crime prevention uh, 24-7, 365, and you'll want to check them out. The great thing about crime prevention is they are locally owned. And so you don't have to go through some command center out in Kansas or the hinterland. So um, uh, get yourself a doorbell camera or some form of security, outdoor, whatever. You know what you need, and uh, there's the people to talk to to get it. Um, we are, of course, very fortunate to have um, uh, Phil Kirpin with us, President of the American Commitment, from time to time, as uh, we feel uh, there are things that you need to be informed about directly from, if you will, the head of the snake, Washington, D.C. <laughs> and I see Phil even laughing about that. Uh, God bless him. He, he chooses to live right there close to ground zero, I assume. Well, and I, I've been trying to convince my wife we should move. but <laughs> And here he is. He's a Mets fan, obviously. Uh, the Mets stadium is right across the a road there from the U.S. Open. So uh, I know exactly where it is. But, yeah. um, Phil, I'm I hoping that uh, if 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 Biden still has his crazy vaccine ban on, that uh, Novak will sail his yacht right into Long Island Sound and pull right into the uh, Flushing Bay there and evade well, the uh, mandate. It kept him out of the Miami Open. And, yeah, I'm really disappointed, actually, because, you know, your governor brilliantly pointed out that there's no... Uh, vaccine mandate on the ferry from the Bahamas into Fort Lauderdale. So I thought he'd take advantage of that, but I think he doesn't want to uh, anger Biden too much. So he didn't, he didn't go that route and he skipped it. Well, it's really crazy, but it's not the first crazy thing that Biden has done. And I know that you have got a uh, shopping list of items. I'm sure that are irritating the American commitment think tank. And of course on our minds is how, how's our money? And we know there's not money. I mean, we know there's paper, but it's just a, I don't know what you'd call it. I'm going to let you talk about it better than I. But, you know, we're in some weird situations here, Phil. And I know you've written about it. I know you've studied it, you guys, at the American Commitment. And I'm all ears, sir. Yeah, we had a really interesting, we had a really interesting week because we had the first veto of the Biden presidency. You know, the first, first two years plus every single thing that came to his desk he loved because they all came from Nancy Pelosi and he signed them all and he, he never had a, he never had occasion to veto anything. This week, uh, we got the first veto of his presidency. He vetoed a uh, bill. Actually, formally, it was a joint resolution, House Joint Resolution number 30. Uh, and this was a bill to um, it, it. It's going to sound crazy and not make sense, but then I'll unpack the whole thing for you, Ward. Uh, this was a bill to rescind a rule that Trump issued that reversed a. a sorry, a, to reverse. Now I already confused myself. This was a bill <laughs> to rescind a Biden Department of Labor rule that reversed a Trump Department of Labor rule that stopped the ESG movement from redefining what fiduciary duty means. And that makes no sense when you tell it that way, but I'm going to reverse it and tell it from the beginning to the end, and it'll make sense. Here's what's happened on this issue. About five or six years ago, uh, liberal activist groups decided that they were going to redefine what fiduciary duty means in the context of retirement plans. And for all of history, up until a few years ago, it meant managing financial risk, getting the best returns you can get for your investors, essentially, you know, representing the financial interests of your investors, being responsible for their money, 
that you invest it prudently, that you get the best returns, that you don't take undue risks and so forth. Everyone always understood fiduciary obligation to be a financial issue until this ESG movement, maybe five years ago, where they said, no, actually, what a fiduciary should do is consider how they can stop global warming and how they can advance LGBTQ and what they can do for social justice. And this ESG agenda, these objectives, which have nothing to do with your financial returns, uh, ought to be part of the fiduciary obligation of, uh, of an investment manager that runs a retirement account. Now, this is an insane concept because once you allow things that have nothing to do with financial returns for investors, you destroy the whole idea of fiduciary obligation, right? Now, a fund manager, instead of managing your risk and getting you the best financial return, now they could say, well, I'm going to go all in on you know, promoting whatever left-wing agenda, because I think that's in your, that's in your interest for me to do that as the plan manager. And, and, you know, if you accept lower returns and you have a worse retirement as a consequence of that, too bad. Uh, so what Trump did is he actually had the Department of Labor write a rule that specifically prohibited any manager of a retirement fund uh, from considering what they called non-pecuniary factors, which is to say they couldn't consider anything that didn't affect your financial returns, your expected financial performance, the management of financial risk. Um, they had to be a real fiduciary in sense they represent the financial interests of the investors in that fund. Uh, and of course, the left went wild about how outrageous this is. He's trying to ban ESG, which is a lie. He didn't, he didn't ban ESG. If you're investing your own funds and you want to do a left-wing ESG fund, hey, that's fine. No one's going to stop you. And if you're managing someone else's funds, and you can demonstrate that an ESG investment is in the financial interest of your investors, then that would have been fine under the Trump rule. You just couldn't use non-financial, non-pecuniary, I'm going to solve global warming as the reason you were doing it. It had to actually make financial sense for your investors. So that was the Trump rule. Uh, Biden came in and rescinded the Trump rule. He issued a new rule that basically said non-pecuniary factors are back, go wild. People managing retirement funds can now pursue whatever left-wing agenda they want, and that will that that'll be part. Of and you can't sue them; you have no recourse, and so forth. And so, uh, Congress did a bill. Formerly, it's called a Joint Resolution, House Joint Resolution Thirty, but everyone refers to it as a bill anyway because we're used to everything being bills. So, um, that rescinded the Biden rule, put the Trump rule back in. So it's like a one sentence bill. It's basically like the Trump rule is rescinded. The Sorry, the Biden rules rescinded, Trump rules back in. Of course, the implication of that would be now investment ma managers of retirement funds would have to invest in your financial interest again. They actually got a few Democrats to go for this, uh, two in the Senate, Joe Manchin and uh, John Tester. That's how they were able to get it on the president's desk. The president vetoed it, which means he kept his own rule. Uh, that says, you know, the left wing political stuff can trump your financial interest for your retirement account. Uh, they tried to do an override vote yesterday and they failed. So the override of the veto of the rule to rescind the previous rule to stop a redefinition failed. I like to say that Biden vetoed your retirement security. It's a lot simpler and it's also accurate. Uh, but that, I don't know if you were able to follow that word. It's the, the best explanation I can give of something that had a lot of twists and turns back and forth. But basically, Biden wants politics to be allowed uh, in the management of retirement funds. And, you know, most Republicans, and, and I think that's crazy. I followed every bit of it. Uh, and I give you an A on your presentation, Phil. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> There's a lot. Of, I think it's like a quintuple negative or something. I don't know. It's hard to back and forth. But, that's... But, but, but here's what I also think has happened, sir. It has opened up the government for bribes. The corporations now can get subsidies from the government for crazy projects that don't make financial sense, such as the proliferation of the hoax that the electric vehicle is going to be able to power diesel truck transportation, for example. Yeah. And some goofball who in the corporate world who gets a subsidy from the government to protect the veto. Are you following me? Am I making yeah. sense? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, this all Have relates. Have you seen examples of this? It, it's a very good point because, I mean, at least half of this is energy policy. You know, there's also a lot of social policy in there and the wokeness and all that kind of, but a lot of this is being driven by energy. And uh, 
You're right. Uh, they want to get rid of internal combustion engines. Uh, California has already banned their sales by 2035. And of course, you know, what the idiot liberals in California do, the idiot liberals in the rest of the country try to copy as quickly as possible. So that's usually the leading indicator. We've got uh, all of that money from the so-called Inflation Reduction Act that they throw at electric vehicles. We've got more crazy subsidies for wind and solar than we've ever seen before. Uh, just massive, massive amounts of our tax dollars going to all of that. And word, even with that, fossil fuels are still out competing that stuff. Right? People still, even with a massive thumb on the scale of all those government subsidies, fossil fuels still tend to outcompete. So, you know, what do they try to do? They try to starve fossil fuels of access to capital. So when you can put a thumb on the scale in terms of the investment world as well, on top of all the things that they're, they're doing politically with the subsidies and so forth, they want to make it so that fossil fuels are uninvestable. They want to, even even with all of the subsidies and all of that, uh, you know, the stuff that they prefer, the, the green energy and the electric cars that they prefer, they're still losing out, even with all of that. So they, they want to starve fossil fuels of investment and force things in the direction that they prefer, which, of course... Um, you know, there's a huge amount of corruption, to your point. I mean, they, they, they've got cronies that are lined up to benefit from that in all kinds of different ways. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially the, it's an attempted political reorganization of our economy. But of course, you know, to the extent they succeed, it makes all of us much, much poorer and it makes our lives a lot harder. You know, if you can't, you know, if you can't buy uh, a new car with an internal combustion engine because they prohibit the sales, people are going to try to keep their used cars on the road forever. You know, if they can't afford or don't want an electric car. And so it just it means uh, it means that we're not going to have as many choices. We're not going to have as much, uh, you know, sort of quality uh, in in transportation. And also it affects other sectors also uh, because energy is an input and in everything, everything that's everything you buy who had to be grown, shipped or manufactured. So when they've got uh, so much of their efforts towards making energy more expensive, that makes everything more expensive and it makes us all a lot poorer. And so I do think energy is a huge, huge aspect of all of this, along with kind of the social issue stuff. And, and it all kind of travels together in this uh, ESG movement. Well, I don't see where we can block it now that we've tried this congressional intervention, which, you know, I got to get I got to get I got to hand some things to Biden and and. The guy acts dumb, but he's got, a lot, he got a lot of political intuition from hanging around the, uh, the, the, the game all his life. I, I'll assure you, Phil, unless you correct me if I'm wrong. He knows people. He knows. I think he thinks the public is dumb and that he can outmaneuver the public. And here's the bottom line about the guy. And I, maybe we can segue into this at some point. He's on the take. He's willing to jeopardize the American people for personal gain. And we're just beginning to unpack this. I might maybe your insights or comments on this. He's just beginning to unpack this with this China stuff. Uh, uh, you know, and Hunter being the bag man. Any way this is related? You, you follow my drift here? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I think the... Um... Clearly, his son and his brother were monetizing the family name. Uh, you know, they had nothing. They had nothing to offer their Chinese investors other than access to the Biden family and political influence. It's not like they have any relevant knowledge or expertise. And so, this idea that oh, these are just you know, international business dealings that Joe had nothing to do with. You know, I mean, if if Joe had nothing to do with it, they had nothing to sell. There was no. They had no. Right, what, right, what were they? Right. What were they offering other than access to him? Right. They had nothing. They didn't. They knew nothing. There was no. There's no logic to these deals other than uh, that they were selling access. And so I do think that it's a major issue. And you know, of course, you know the challenge is um, when you're dealing with an operation that's that's pretty slick. There's not going to be. You know, there's not going to be a, a sufficiently smoking gun. I think to to tie it to him uh, when you have a media that wants to run interference and make excuses for him rather than connect the dots that have been pretty obvious to a lot of us for a long time. I mean, you've got, you've got the former business partner who went on TV on Tucker show and connected the dots and that wasn't enough yeah. they, they could, you know, right. to downplay it. So, I mean, I think that given that he's been sort of bulletproof to this point, I'm not sure that, uh, I'm not sure that there's going to be a breakthrough with the broader public. And so he probably feels that, um, he doesn't have to worry too much about it. And, you know, I don't know. 
you know, I, I think it's obvious that they had these corrupt deals in the past. And in particular, they, they were very actively monetizing the kind of the Biden name in between when he was vice president, and when he was president. I don't know how much it motivates the things that he does now as president, just because he's so old. And, you know, I don't think he's thinking too much about, you know, the standard of living he's going to have in his post-presidency. I think he's just kind of trying to get through each day. And, and I think that the decisions that he makes for the most part are constrained by the staff. And I think they put limited options in front of him. And I think it's just a very left-wing administration. And so I do think that there, there's, I do think that there's some corruption, but I think most of the stuff they're pursuing just because they're, you know, it's a very left-wing administration. They hate fossil fuels because they hate fossil fuels. If it enriches their friends, great. I think that's a, a bonus, but I'm not sure that, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that's the main reason they're doing these things. I think this is just this is the agenda they believe in. So I, I don't know how much of the actual motivation is the corruption versus it all just kind of working together and pointing in the same direction. Well, it certainly is something that is um, um, affecting the common man, if you will. Um, when you start messing with um, return on entire uh, retirement investments that are handled, of course, in some fiduciary way and in the state of Florida, for example, uh, we're pretty fortunate in that we've got a, con- a very conservative government. Yeah. Um, we are, you know, we're guaranteeing to all the retirees in the state of Florida, I'm sure you know this, a 3% COLA. Think yeah, you're, and, and your your governor has actually, uh, your governor has actually prohibited ESG investment in any of the state pension funds. And so they've, they've got, uh, you have protection there against this kind of, you know, politicization of your retirement funds uh, that's been implemented at the state level. So you're less vulnerable to this uh, than people are in a lot of other places. But, you know, the, the thing that I tell people, and I think this is really important to understand on this issue is, you know, you might think, hey, this doesn't affect me. I'm in a state where my pension isn't doing this. I'm protected on that in that way. Or maybe you might think, you know, I have all my money in a 401k that I manage myself and I pick the funds and I know they're not ESG funds. You might think this has nothing to do with you. But the thing is that you've got a lot of big pension funds that are underfunded and uh, we're probably going to be forced to bail them out someday. And you look at uh, the situation in states like Illinois and California and, you know, if those pension funds continue to be managed in a way that just plays politics at the expense of the actual returns, then someday we're all going to be forced to bail them out with a federal taxpayer bailout. And so, you know, we're, we're going to pay for this one way or another, whether we have accounts that are directly impacted by it uh, or, or as taxpayers. But it's, it's just it's harmful for all of us when people's retirement funds get wasted on politics. Uh, even if it's not our funds directly, I just feel like we're all going to pay for it uh, one way or another. Colin Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment Think Tank out of D.C., who uh, is at the uh, helm of a ship, if you will, borrow this analogy with me, that is sailing through all the relevant waters we need to sail through to figure out what is going on in our country. Conversations we don't necessarily hear in the press, and that's why we have them here in the Ward Scott Files. You're talking about bailouts, and that's, of course, perked up some interest here in the chat box I'm watching. We just bailed out, did we not? Or changed the whole concept of bailing out with the rescue, quote unquote, correct me if I'm wrong in that term, of the failed bank, and it, it, you know, go through that. Can you walk us through yeah. that? Well, Sil- Silicon Valley Bank was not, uh, by anyone's definition, a systemically important. I see a systemically important bank. It was not the kind of bank that was supposedly too big to fail. And you know, and they, we spent we spent obscene amounts of money complying with all of these new regulations that they put in with Dodd-Frank, everything that happened in response to the last financial crisis. And they told us that the benefit of having all of these new regulations and spending all of this money to comply with them was that we would not have more bailouts, that we would not have more making it up on the fly. And the first time we had a bank in crisis after all of that, that went right out the window. 
we essentially spent all that money for nothing. All of those regulations, it was all for nothing. They still make it up as they go along. They still don't let banks fail, uh, even uh, a bank that really was not systemically important. And it wasn't that it was too big to fail, Word, it was too green to fail. It was too politically connected to fail. It had too many uh, companies were banking there that had political connections. I think there were thousands of solar companies. And I think it shows you the way that a political agenda can really corrupt an, an, a financial system. Uh, and, you know, this is, I am a little bit sympathetic uh, to what happened to Silicon Valley Bank just because so much of it was caused by Federal Reserve policy. They were sort of whipsawed uh, by the Fed cutting rates so low for so long. Uh, and then they had a lot of treasury bonds that when the Fed reserve reversed and raised rates, the bonds uh, lost a huge amount of value uh, because prices move opposite of interest rates. And when they were facing withdrawals, they were forced to redeem and to, to take those losses. And uh, that it was sort of the triggering event that caused a lot of their depositors to lose confidence and start pulling out their money. Now, that said, I mean, the whole point of a bank, you, you need to know, you need to balance, you know, you need to balance your exposures. I mean, you can't, you, you, you can't lock yourself into these long-term uh, obligations if you're not going to be able to meet your liquidity requirements. And I mean, this is, this is very, very basic stuff. And then you find out that, um, you know, they've got people in there, you know, for, I think it was for half a year last year, they had no chief risk officer uh, in their uh, European division. Their chief risk officer was, you know, a transgender activist. And, you know, it's just it, 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 the, the, the sort of the, the wokeism and the leftism and the politicization of everything has displaced basic competence where you just want someone who knows how to do the job. And then there was also a big supervisory failure here, right? Where was the San Francisco Federal Reserve? Right? They're supposed to have a bank examiner that watches this stuff. They're supposed to have someone who says, hey, look, you've got a, you've got huge risk exposure when interest rates rise because of how much of your money you have parked in government bonds. Um, and you know, they, they were asleep at the switch. And so, you know, you get all these people who don't do their jobs and then they want to just say, you know what, we'll have taxpayers step in and guarantee it. And, you know, then you have this ridiculous claim from the Biden administration. They're saying, well, well we're not going to, the, the backstop is not taxpayer money. It's going to be an assessment on all the banks. The banks are all going to pay an assessment. It's like, well, I mean, another word for that is a tax, right? I mean, if you assess all the banks, the banks all have to pay for that. They're going to take it out of us one way or another. I mean, they're not going to just absorb the losses. So I, I think that it's, uh, I think it's embarrassing. I think it's pathetic. And, uh, you know, I really think whatever the rules of the road are going to be, they need to be the rules. And when you have a situation where an institution fails, according to the rules, they've got to be allowed to fail. And so I think it, it, it's extremely, extremely disappointing what they did. And, uh, it, it just shows that when you're politically connected, they're not going to let you fail. And I think that's a that's a really dangerous thing because it means that, you know, everyone in business, instead of trying to succeed in the actual business they're in, they're going to spend a lot of time and effort and money making sure they've got enough political influence to not be allowed to fail. And that's just that's going to be a lot of wasted effort and a lot of corruption. Uh, you know, they could have been invested in actually, you know, in making things and improving standards of living and, and now won't be. Well, Phil, I think of it as the socialization of risk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, 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 you can steal that from me, too, if you'd like, and use it, because it just popped in my head listening to you. But what we do, we have the government underwriting risk, which can only be defined as communism. I mean, you know, the government is now, the state is now in the entrepreneur business, and it's taken away the actual core value of the American dream. The American dream is that you use your wits about you and your discipline and your, you start something from scratch and it turns into a Home Depot or it turns into this or that. And you did it with your a willingness to take risk. And I mean, I've taken risk. I mean, I, I mean that, that's all part of it, you know? But if they're going to protect the guys because they're politically fashionable, and then they're going to push everybody to become politically fashionable. Then what happens to the little guy starting out as a mom and pop and building a better widget? Yeah, I mean, it's almost it's almost impossible now uh, to start out as a small company and become a large company. And, uh, it, you know, other than 
other than in tech where things are kind of easy to scale up, it's very, very difficult. And uh, the compliance burdens and the, the costs of government and everything else are, are uh, very imposing. And of course, you know, if the incumbent companies are not able to, are, you know, not allowed to fail because of government policies, so then they can't be displaced by someone else who does a better job, provides more value and so forth. I mean, you mentioned Home Depot. Home Depot, when they went public, when they did their initial public offering, their IPO, uh, I think it was the 82. They had four stores at the time. Okay. They became a public company with four stores. Um, that's totally unthinkable now because just the cost of being a public company, the compliance costs, Sarbanes-Oxley audits, the dealing with all the SEC rules, all of that. It's so expensive that unless you're like a billion dollar company, you don't even think about going public, which means you don't have local access to, you know, you, it's, it's much more access to capital is much more expensive now. Uh, than it would be if we didn't have all of those regulations and barriers and challenges uh, for smaller companies to grow to be larger companies. And, you know, they told us that all of these rules and regulations were going to prevent financial crises. We're going to prevent uh, things like what we just said. And they don't. They don't do what they were supposed to. They impose massive costs, uh, create huge barriers to entry, make it much harder for smaller companies to access capital. And they don't prevent risk. They don't do what they told us they were going to do. So what's what what's it all for? What are we spending all of that time and energy and money complying with all of these crazy government regulations for if it doesn't even prevent uh, what it was supposed to prevent? Well, you used a good verb you know, a moment ago, whipshaw. And that's basically what is happening now with our instability. How in the world can you plan uh, if you can't figure out whether or not the rules are going to be the rules tomorrow? Um, it just creates chaos and political opportunity for the ingenuity of a less than genuine leader. I guess I think I've managed to say that sentence politically correctly. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it, you know, we're I'm getting some chats here. How do we how do we uh, checkmate it? How do we? Well, of course, we go to the we go to the we go to the polls. But I got to say that I think that all this business about trying to. Um, and I think Trump trapped him on this, uh, <laughs> arrest him is a divergent. <laughs> I think he trapped him. I think he, he got, he, he outfoxed him, you know? Uh, well, we'll never know if they really were about to arrest him, but boy, he made them look bad by saying they were going to, right? Well, he split up the jury. The grand jury is now is arguing with each other and they can't, they can't come. And they, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, they bit off more than they can chew with the guy. Now he's coming out as Robin Hood. And he's got him some, he's getting some bumps in the poll because, you know, my God, here they're going to pick on this guy who, but you know, Clinton did worse, uh, you know, Edwards get worse and all this other stuff. And this is not even a, 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 a felony and it's not a state matter and all this other stuff, which has been exposed. It, it is amazing. It is another example of the woke believing that we're done. I believe, I think. And if they scream enough and they're hysterical enough, they're emotional enough, you'll just give up and not go to the meeting. I saw this happen locally, Phil, for our break here. We had a meeting on um, an issue about, it happens to be about canine dogs, okay? And now this is the latest attack on law enforcement here locally. Um, the minorities, the quote-unquote people of color, mostly, want to do away with canine dogs because they discriminate against black people. Okay, you with this? And so we have a public meeting. The, 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 the police dogs discriminate? Yeah, the police dogs discriminate. Right. So we have a public meeting, and the rules of a meeting are not even followed. The speakers are shouted down. Uh, they have to call the meeting off. My point is the people who are supposed to enforce the rules got intimidated by the vociferous, emotionally immature behavior, which is effective, and call the meeting off. This is kind of, I think, a woke modus operandi. I mean, you look at AOC. You look at the, the you know, you look at the, uh, the, the, they, they, they all practice it. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, how do you factor that into your? Yeah, research? I mean, I think there's a lot to that. You know, the um, 
you know, everyone on the left loves uh, loves Saul Alinsky. And, uh, you know, if you've never read his book, Rules for Radicals, you should, because it actually has a lot of good advice, you know, for activists on the right also. But, I mean, the, you know, these these tactics uh, are, you know, these tactics are, they, they do these things, you know, for, for two reasons. Number one, because it's fun. It's fun to go, you know, be a group together and disrupt a thing. And it's a, it's a happening and, you know, it's a social thing. Um but also because it works, right? And those go together, by the way. If people aren't having fun, it probably won't work. You know, if they're just angry and upset and, you know, they, they, they don't have any, they don't have that sort of that bonding aspect of it, uh, then they become, you know, it's not enjoyable and they'll stop doing it. So, I mean, I think that, um, you know, sort of social activism, uh, you know, certainly can work. I mean, the challenge, the challenge our side always has is like, um, you know, conservatives are usually busy working, raising their families, running their businesses, they might have a little time to do, you know, be involved in a political group or that kind of thing. But uh, they rarely are able to dedicate their whole life to it the way a lot of people on the left are, because, you know, they let they get they get all the grant money and the community organizers and they make it a way of life and a, uh, and a livelihood, you know, they become, they become professional activists and uh, they, they kind of grow their numbers and they're able to do it, to organize these things. And um, that kind of puts conservatives, I think at a disadvantage on a lot of things, but you know, the, what, what I've seen happen, that has been really encouraging over the last few years um, is that in the education area in particular, uh, parents have really organized and uh, taken control in a way that we haven't seen before. And, you know, of course, uh, Florida is about to be the sixth state to do universal school choice when your governor signs that bill uh, just in the last two years. And you know, I think that, you know, kind of the, the answer that we have to the way the left gets together and they, they show up and they disrupt things and they do all these sort of stuff. So what we, what we have is the ability to make the argument that, you know, like we've got, kind of the ultimate in like freedom and do your own thing or whatever. We want to actually get money and power out of the hands of government to individuals and power families and power parents. And, you know, I think that uh, it's a really good message, especially at a time where people kind of across the political spectrum are just losing confidence in institutions. And I think all the, all the failures and the stupidity that we saw during COVID means that a lot of people who maybe weren't political before or who were left of center before now think the government is stupid and they're right. And so I think that gives us a chance to um, to to maybe make kind of some of some of our ideas uh, a little bit more more fashionable, more interesting, more enjoyable, more cool, and uh, you know maybe uh, you know get enough people engaged to win some of these fights. But you know I think the um, you know the the left has become crazy, right? And like you know they have. They're, they're advancing on a lot of fronts, but I think most people still kind of like, if you show them what they, they, what they say, they, most people still don't want crazy. So there's a good constituency, I think, for pushing back on this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I think the, this, this crazy exercise we just had in Washington with this rule flipping back and forth and the veto and all of it, I think it's, I, I think it's really helpful. I think it's really helpful for us to explain kind of like the core ideology of the left, which is, you know, your retirement funds are a political tool for them to advance their agenda. And that's what they care about. I mean, I just, I think, I think we need to, uh, we need to be about people, you know, having control of their own lives, their own family, their own money, their own retirement and so forth and show how the left just wants to politicize everything. And I think that if we could do that, we, we will ultimately win a lot of these fights. I think we've got a better message. Talking to Phil Kirkman, American Commit. We've got to take a break with the weather here at the bottom of the hour. And I see some things you're interested in in the chat line. We'll certainly bring those up in a moment when we get back. Um, and I think we've identified a very good issue that you as the public is watching and listening to this show um, may participate in this. This is a process of learning what's going on. And I think the phrase I take away from what we've talked about up to this point is uh, the political intrusion into every aspect of our institutions to uh, uh, make a, an agenda, supplant common sense, if you will. Uh, it's not just in the financial institute, which is one of the shocking areas we're talking about now, because when you start messing around with people's financial security, which they built themselves, hopefully, over a number of years, it should be protected, um, is also in education. And it's uh, it's also in law enforcement. And 
what we have to do is identify these elements and push back and be reasonable about them and not be shouted down at public meetings. So um, everything sort of connects, if you will. And that's what we sort of try to do here is connect the dots for you. We'll be right back in just a moment on Ward's, uh, uh, um, with Ward's weather and the uh, Ward's Scott files. So stay tuned with Phil Kirby. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. The warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right, welcome back to uh, Ward Scott Files and Ward's Weather Report. Compliments of Lewis Oil. All the Chevron stations, gas, believe me. Gas is not going to go away. Come on and keep pumping at those Chevron stations. That's the a place where fossil fuel runs your vehicle. And I don't see a charging station at them yet. Charging station. I've watched them here. They have to sit around in their cars for about 45 minutes. What do you do? Uh, take a nap or what? 63 degrees here right now. It's going to go up right near 90, believe it or not. So we're into summer. We've still got pollen, uh, but hopefully we'll get away from that a little bit soon. And we'll be actually uh, having a couple of very enjoyable months here in the piney woods of north central Florida in God's country. Uh, about the, wor- uh, the world of weather, though, uh, there are some places that are still having some problems. You know, Los Angeles actually had a tornado touchdown there. It rarely happens, but it happened. Uh, you've got an early spring storm in the Midwest and the Northeast. And California keeps getting pounded. Uh, the storm train keeps rolling through California. And, you know, California has never prepared, it seems, for anything because they've done so many foolish things. They really have built where they shouldn't build and close to the ocean. Assumptions are all over the place. And now we've got houses hanging off of cliffs and et cetera, et cetera. And if you recall, they they, um, stopped the reservoirs and let the water flow because they needed salamander to live. That was one of their deals. And so and so ended up uh, providing the, the no water at all for the farmers and. There we are. So meanwhile, in China, and my computer here, I'm understanding that sandstorms are blanketing uh, China, and it is causing air pollution to soar off the charts. So you know, you have to realize if we get uh, restricted on our air pollution, so to speak, 
we're still going to need the products that other countries are going to sell us, give us, trade us or whatever. And they're going to have the air pollution. So what are you talking about? Uh, that's Ward's weather report. The weather report is often as crazy as a political report because the weather has been politicized. It's probably the biggest hubris of anything. Hubris is a Greek word, which means mortals trying to act as if they were immortal and make decisions that are the province of immortals. And I think this climate change is one of the biggest examples. We're talking with Phil Kirpin, who is, as I said, right there at the head of the snake or in the belly of the beast, which analogy, metaphor, whatever you like the best. And that is Washington, as I say it. My wife says it's Washington, and I say Washington. I don't know, probably corrupted the word. Uh, but it is a weird world in terms of law enforcement. And Phil and I were talking on the break about a plan he has. Maybe they can make it happen. Uh, but bring us up to date, Phil, if you have a moment here, to talk about the crazy, zany world of po- civilian protection by the law in the, all places the nation's capital. Yeah, you know, it's... um. We've had a huge resurgence of crime in the last couple of years in D.C. We get about three carjackings a day now. Um, it's there are no. It's not like it, it used to be. If you went to sort of a rough area, you there was a lot of crime. Now there's crime in the whole city. Even you know, I mean, there there was somebody was carjacked one block from my office a couple of weeks ago. So it's a it's a pretty dangerous environment in Washington D.C. right now. And of course. Uh, under the Constitution, that's Congress's responsibility for an obvious reason, which is, you know, crime in D.C. is not just a problem for the 600,000 people who live here. It's a problem for the other 300 million people who want to come to D.C. and, you know, see their government, petition their government. It's a basic constitutional right. You shouldn't have to endanger your physical safety to exercise that right. And so Congress has a very strong interest uh, in doing something about violent crime in, in D.C., uh, there was recently a bill that passed and that we think uh, Biden's going to sign. He said he's going to sign. It could happen any day now. Uh, but all this bill does is prevent the D.C. Council from making things even worse. It doesn't actually fix the problem. But our, our insane uh, D.C. Council in the middle of a crime spree um, actually passed a bill to reduce punishments for violent crimes, uh, if you can believe that, including carjackings. And uh, the mayor vetoed it. They overrode her veto. And so Congress, uh, there's a provision under the D.C. Home Rule Act that if the district messes with the criminal code, Congress can overturn that. And it's privileged. It can't be filibustered in the Senate. And so, uh, you know, I I thought it was going to be a close vote in the Senate and uh, the president might veto the effort to overturn that. And, uh, you know, we we sort of thought it was going to be a bit of an uphill fight. But what happened that was interesting is it was a it was a close to party line vote in the House. I think 173 House Democrats voted no, which is crazy in itself that 173 House Democrats were for weakening punishments for violent crime during a crime wave. It tells you something about the mentality of them. Uh, But then Biden changed his position. He changed his position from I oppose it to I support it. And then most Senate Democrats flipped, I think, got 81 votes in the Senate. And so it was just, you know, it was basically a handful of the craziest, uh, I think, 17 of the craziest liberal members uh, voted against in the Senate. And he's going to sign that. So I think he's going to make a big deal about, look how I'm now tough on crime. I signed the bill preventing them from lowering penalties for violent crime in the nation's capital. But, you know, the point that I've been making, you know, that that's political, because, by the way, in between when he was. When he changed his position in between when he was against the bill and when he was for it, we had the uh, mayoral primary in Chicago and they tossed their mayor out over yeah. the crime issue. So, you know, he looked at that and he said, I can't I can't be for weaker sentences right now. Uh, it's going to look ridiculous. It's going to be bad politically. And that's why he switched. But, you know, he D.C. is a unique place because our local prosecutor is a federal prosecutor. It's the U.S. attorney for D.C. It's a guy named Matthew Graves is the you know the head prosecutor for all local crimes. And he doesn't prosecute most of them, Ward. And, you know, I think 72 percent of misdemeanors and 52 percent of penalty arrests uh, and 52 percent of felony arrests are not prosecuted in D.C. Uh, we got our chief of police would get went crazy the other day about how they keep arresting these people and they're right back on the street. Uh, the average homicide suspect has 11 prior arrests. And so, you know, they arrest these people over and over and over again, and they can't keep them in jail because the prosecutor won't prosecute them. So I'm really hoping that now that Biden has decided that uh, he wants to 
supposedly wants to do something about crime in D.C., that from an oversight standpoint, they can really get some pressure on, you know, his U.S. attorney to actually prosecute crimes and turn things around because, you know, it's a local issue for me, but it's really a national issue. I mean, for, for two reasons. One is, as I said, people should be able to go to D.C. and visit Congress, visit their capital, you know, without endangering themselves. So it matters for, for the whole American people. But also, you know, this is not unique. <laughs> this is happening everywhere. Every, you know, you've got... You know, it's not a federal prosecutor in most places, but we've got local prosecutors all over the country that refuse to prosecute crimes, including in most of our biggest cities now. You have Soros-backed prosecutors who, as a matter of policy, don't believe in prosecuting crimes. You know, we, we now have a there's a huge amount of money and support now for prosecutors who don't prosecute. So if we could, you know, kind of raise awareness and push back on this, have, have Congress actually force uh, some changes in D.C. that could have kind of broader effects, uh, I, I think, in other places also. So I do think it's a it's a very important issue. And, you know, you're probably going to see some headlines, you know, whenever he signs that bill, which, you know, could happen any day now about how, you know, Biden stood up to crime in D.C. or whatever. And, you know, I'm glad he's going to sign it because I don't think it would have been good if they weakened punishments for violent crimes right now. But he should not be allowed to claim that he's fighting crime in D.C. if his uh, U.S. attorney continues to not prosecute the majority of felonies. Well, you know, in the state of Florida, DeSantis has actually removed a prosecutor for not prosecuting crimes. And the... Uh, the yeah, it would be good if some reporters would ask Biden why he doesn't remove his you exactly. know, U.S. attorney for D.C. and put someone in who'll really do the job, because the only thing that guy seems to care about is the January 6th cases. He doesn't seem to care at all about the the massive rise in street crime in D.C. Well, you know, this is exactly the remedy that DeSantis has come up with. Uh, we have a case in Orlando, for example, where um, there's a, a female prosecutor there, probably Zoros supported, woman of color, if you will. And um, that's a new phrase I've learned. There have been so many ways to talk about this uh, that are politically, uh, socially acceptable, I guess. But. The point is she's not doing her job and that she personally, out of her own ideology, I'm sure, uh, you know, decides whom she will prosecute and whom she won't. And DeSantis is watching her. And there's no question. But what if I were a prosecutor in the state of Florida right now, I'd be aware of the fact that, you know, DeSantis might just swoop in and take me out. He's even come to our the city of Gainesville here, Phil, which is rather interesting. If you have a moment, I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you. Um, the city of Gainesville. A commission has always had as a cash cow the fact that it is in charge of managing the local utility. And so what it's always doing is raising the rates on the utility and then taking the money and not providing any better utility service and then using uh, the money on woke projects and running the city into bankruptcy. So uh, there's a bill that's going to be signed and it's going to be, I'm sure it's, it's working its way through the Florida uh, Senate and house right now that they're just going to take the utility away from the city. And DeSantis is going to appoint a board to, to, uh, to run it. And then the city is going to be out that cash cow. And he even has threatened this now get this bill in removing the commissioners of the city Hmm. because the city is a sub division of the state. Right. And that's got me chattering. Look, I mean, I think <laughs> there's no better way to play hardball than to actually fire people and to threaten to fire more people to get them uh, kind of in line. So I, I, I really like that he's doing that. You know, I think, you know, I love I, I love President Trump and I think he was a very good president. But I'll tell you the one thing that I really have, you know, he didn't fire any of the covid maniacs. He didn't fire Burks. He didn't fire Fauci any of those guys. And, you know, you can come out and say you disagree with people and they're wrong or whatever, but if you don't fire people when you have the power to fire them, uh, boy, it's really hard to change the direction of things when people are doing the wrong things. Well, of course, the attack on DeSantis has already started and he hasn't really even declared yet, but the, the uh, state of Florida would be vastly different without him. And um, so we're not so ha- we're not so eager. To yeah, I was going to say, I don't know, it might not be great for you if he moved to Washington. Yeah, no, it wouldn't be a good. I don't deal. know if his replacement would be as, would do as good a job. And he's he's appointed a selection crimes committee, and you know he's now decided. Listen, you know I don't believe all that he's formally said it, not you know just off the cuff at some podium. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to create elections a crimes committee with uh, power to prosecute throughout the state, and uh, we'll go find these people. 
we won't rely on these local prosecutors to either or supervisors to even find it, which they don't, because the supervisors don't go looking for uh, whether or not somebody is uh, telling the truth when they sign up to to, uh, to to vote. In fact, in our county, the supervisor here even went into the jail during COVID, by the way, after the law had been made that you had to pay back what you stole before you could uh, be forgiven of your felony and signed up felons. With Zuckerberg money, Phil. This, yeah, ca- this county had $700,000 of Zuckerberg money pumped into he did it. it. All over the, he did it all over the country. It was hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars uh, to uh, essentially insinuate himself into local you know, election authorities all over the country. And, uh, you know, it's, um, you know what the media does. If you even ask a question about that, they call you an election denier and all this kind of stuff. So it's a big problem. It's a big problem, the uh, the way the kind of the narrative dominance that the left has in so many of these areas, including, you know, election integrity. And so you need to have people, you need to have people like Trump, people like DeSantis, who just don't care if the media attacks them all day long, who just figure that's part of the deal and they're going to do what they think is right anyway. And so, you know, I think it's kind of, it's unfortunate in a way that we basically have two guys that are willing to do that and they're about to destroy each other. You yes, know, that's unbearable. It's like out of all the thousands of policies, we got like two guys, but now they're going to... Yeah, know. it's just maddening. It's maddening. You know, but I read in the, in the journal this morning that it's not a slam dunk for Dominion's case uh, against Fox. And I haven't read the details of that. Have you? Well, seen- we'll see. It's very, you know, <laughs> uh, defamation cases are very, very hard to win. They're very hard to win. And so we'll see. I, I don't... Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that in a way the... Uh, the point of the case was more to embarrass Fox by getting the document production, which they've already done. Whether they can actually win, I, I don't know. That's a that's a that's a hard one to predict. Well, it's just busting out now and getting to be one of those other things that's being um, you know spread about the news world. But um, it's um, it's an interesting case to kind of watch because uh, we on the board Scott Files we received a lot of negative um, scrutiny, if you will, from say YouTube because. We were questioning the national narrative about the election. We really weren't doing any more than questioning it. So, you know, we got penalized for even daring to question it. Um, what do you make of a TikTok? I don't know too much about that. Have you looked into that at all? Well, um, you know, the big, the big, the big concern is that uh, they're taking data, right? The big concern is that it's going to be. Uh, surveillance app for the Chinese government that the Chinese communists are building, you know, a data warehouse profile of all the American kids who were dancing around or whatever. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the thing is like all these tech companies are doing that, right. Uh, they're, they all have, they all have sort of surveillance aspects of all these apps and, uh, you know, data profiles and, uh, and targeted ads and all the rest of it. So I don't know that, what TikTok is doing is all that different from, you know, what Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and, you know, Google and all the rest of them do. The The question is, you know, what are the geostrategic implications of a company with, you know, ties to the Chinese uh, government having access to that kind of data? And so I think that's where uh, that's where you got people in Congress that are very concerned and are, you know, threatening to to ban it or whatever. So I, I didn't watch the hearing yesterday. I don't know if they're, you know, I, it's I'm sort of I'm sort of divided, right? I mean, I obviously hate the Chinese communists, and you know, anything to put a stick in their eye seems great, but I'm pretty wary about the idea of governments, you know, like banning companies that they don't like because then U.S. companies are going to get banned from other countries, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, you could have. You could have a lot of, you know, it could be a precedent that's problematic in a lot of ways too. So I'm not really sure I have a good opinion either way on that. It's uh, I could kind of see the arguments on both sides. Well, you know, certainly a good example of uh, someone who gathered data and used it in an election was Zuckerberg. We just talked about it. Yeah, I mean, seven hundred thousand dollars in the Alachua County. Super well, it's kind of. I think the TikTok guy said that too. He was like Facebook. He was like Facebook did the same. Thing. Yeah, you know the, the the members of you know Congress were grilling this guy yesterday about like do you have data this that and he's like well like the same as Facebook they did yeah. and I'm kind of watching I'm like you know I, I I didn't watch the hearing but I saw like clips of it and I'm like 
Yeah, well, that's kind of, that seems true to me. I mean, I don't... Yeah, everybody's got data on everybody, you know. Yeah. And 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 but you know we have a we have a a a demonstration. You know, Zuckerberg only pumped that money into Democrat supervisors' offices. He didn't pump it into Republicans. And he tried to pump it in. For example, we do have a Republican in Marion County, and they wouldn't take it. They said, no, we don't want private money in a public election. But the Democrats didn't mind private money in a public election of that of that amount. There was so much money pumped into our local supervisor's office that she had to give back three hundred thousand dollars. This is the thing about the twenty twenty election, right? You know, you got a lot of people debating, like you know, they stole the election. No, how dare you say that? You're an election denier, whatever. And I'm kind of like, you know. There's always a little, there's always some cheating, you know, right? There's always some fraud. It's usually, it's it's probably not usually enough to tip the outcome. It's always sort of a little bit, right? But to me, the real story of the 2020 election wasn't like what fraud might or might not. It was, it was like the stealing that they did in broad daylight. They're changing all the rules for mail ballots, doing all the stuff yeah. with the Zuckerberg money. It was the, you know, they didn't need to like, cheat on election night necessarily if they stockpiled, you know, trucks full of ballots that they legally harvested by changing the rules and all this other stuff. So, I mean, I kind of think most of the stealing they did was in broad daylight, not by breaking the rules, but by changing them. Well, the most of the money, to to your point, went to absentee ballots, the proliferation of absentee ballots, which cannot be, uh, near as I can tell, actually verified. I mean... Right, but I mean, the thing is also, like, Ward, if you think about it, like, Maybe some of them were maybe some of them were straight up fraudulent. Okay, but maybe they just spent a huge amount of money, like you know, going door to door and getting every single person to fill the thing out and putting them in boxes and stacking them up and put bringing the truck. And maybe they were like real votes in the sense they came from people, but people who normally don't vote don't care, and they had someone standing over their shoulder saying, "This is the way to fill it out." You know, I mean, there are a lot of ways to sort of coerce and uh you know stockpile votes that aren't necessarily inventing voters but are also pretty questionable and not really the way that we want it to work and so you know there's they're gray areas and i don't think anything that was done you know i i think that if we wanted to stop them from stealing it, we needed to do it when all this stuff was happening in summer 2020, when all the rules were being changed, when they were setting up the whole harvesting apparatus and all of that. You know, by the time the election's over and you're trying to uh, do rear guard legal actions, it's too late, which is why almost all those suits failed. I think all of them did. And so, you know, when you're fighting against Democrats, you know, for most conservatives, it's like, you know, politics is interesting. We kind of, we like it. You win some, sometimes, you lose sometimes. For a lot of these liberals, it's like their entire life is on the line, right? Because they rely on the government money for everything. And it's sort of the, the stakes are so high for them that they are willing to just in, invest massive amounts of time and money and resources and effort into sort of these operational things around elections. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of that's legal. Most of it's probably legal, including, you know, things that maybe shouldn't be because they get the rules loosened. But, um, you know, when you have that kind of money, I mean, what did he end up spending? $400 million or something, Zuckerberg? Do we know what the total was? I don't know, but we know what it was here locally. It was 700000 yeah. But then, So assume he did that. Assume he did that in another thousand counties around the country. You know, I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah, well, so much, they, I think the supervisor actually returned 200000 of it. They couldn't spend uh, it. They just couldn't find a way, a way to spend it without, you know, blowing the top off the thing. But uh, no, we had a classic example of that where they went into the into the jail and said, "Here, sign here on this clipboard. It's okay. And if you're discovered, we'll deal with that later." And and we had like a bunch. There are lots of places where like the nursing homes had a hundred percent turnout. All this kind yeah. of stuff, and it's, you know, come on. Right, right, right. But we've been talking with Phil Kirp in this hour. It's always a delight. He's coming from the American Commitment dot org. Check out that uh, uh, AmericanCommitment.org. All kinds of research is posted there. Phil is the president of AmericanCommitment.org. He's in D.C. Uh, we always enjoy talking with him, and we certainly appreciate him checking in with us. And um, we look forward to whenever we might talk again. Uh, I don't know. We got to do something about um, uh, the craziness of the ideology and 
ideological intrusion into common sense. I, <laughs> if there is such a thing as common sense anymore, I believe there is. I still do believe, I think, in common sense, Bill. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what it means, but that. Well, I just hope that, when I see uh, it. I just hope that uh, people, you know, people who were forced to choose between DeSantis and Trump can still like uh, all still be friends and come together no matter who the candidate is in the end, because boy, the last thing we need is a fracture on the right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We don't, it's, it's, it's very interesting, but we got, we got a governor doing a great job here. He said, woke, uh, woke Florida's where woke comes to die. That's kind of his motto. And he's taking them on in a minute. So um, we'll see how this works out. Thanks for stopping by, and you're always welcome anytime, and uh, take care, and do not get carjacked or whatever else. Right, right. That's a good don't advice. Don't walk away from your office. I'm concerned about you, buddy. <laughs> Have a great All day, right. everybody. Have a great weekend. Warthog Command Center out.